Hello and welcome back to the Cine Skinny. It's the film podcast from the team behind the Skinny magazine. Uh, Peter, Jamie, and Anna Heat back, back, back again in the shadow of Edinburgh Castle. How is everybody? Jamie, how are you? Not too bad. Cheers. And Heat, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you, Peter? I'm very well. That's nice. We have a lot to get through, hence the speediness yeah. of this introduction. <laughs> he does not care how we are. <laughs> <laughs> but he's, at least he asked, and that's something. Um, yes, the speediness of my introduction and the slight rudeness of my questioning uh, is because there is quite a lot in today's episode. We've got three reviews. We've got um, the new Siegfried Sassoon biopic, Benediction. We've got Doctor Strange and Everything Everywhere All at Once. Two films about the multiverse as a concept. One of them's good listen on to find out which um and we're also going to be plugging our james price retrospective screening at summer hall on the 18th of may 6 30 p.m get your tickets at summerhall.co.uk but more on that later that's the kind of micro plug to start us off but before we get into all that jamie what have you been watching recently well i was inspired a bit by the magnificent uh, acting return of Ki Hu Kwan, who's absolutely brilliant in uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once. But I obviously grew up watching him as like Data in The Goonies or Short Round in Temple of Doom, um, which was his first film role, I think. So I thought I'd give Temple of Doom another run around because I hadn't watched it since I was probably a kid. Um, and oh my, what a wild, fantastically made, but also extremely problematic and tough watch. Um, <laughs> I mean, the filmmaking is so good. That opening scene in Shanghai Casino um, and those amazing chases through the mines in India, you know, they, they absolutely bang. And I love the relationship between um, Short Round and India. It's really sweet. And yeah, Keihu Kwan, he's just like, yeah, he's great. I'd love him to come back to the series. Um, but my God, it's such a nasty film. You know, it's just full of these racist tropes. Kate uh, Capshaw, who's like plays, plays um, Willie Scott, she's just treated so badly, like compared to like, um, oh God, Karen Allen in the first film, you know, just like the, the difference of how he treats the women is like shocking. I just can't believe it's, a, it's just a, such an odd film in Spielberg's career. And, you know, supposedly he was going through a divorce at the time. And that can maybe explains why it goes to such dark places. And he clearly realised himself... <laughs> divorced energy. <laughs> yes, it's the most divorced energy up. film in the world. Uh, and he clearly realised himself, because the next Indiana Jones film's delightful. The Last Crusade is really wholesome and fun. But yeah, this one is just... Yeah, it's a tough watch, you know. But it's still kind of great filmmaking. It's like, it's really impressive. So I guess it's a problematic fave. Um, but it's, it's the a- sexiest he is in an Indiana Jones film. Oh my film. god, yeah. It's insane, but it's also the most racist. Like, it is... Edward Said would have been like... I don't Was he dead at that point? No, he was Of course he wasn't. But he would have been very unhappy. Like, it's so, like, orientalist and horrible yeah. and grim. And I remember watching it as a kid and being like, oh, is that us? Like, is that meant to be... And it was just really weird. But he is so hot in it. And it's like, there is a kind of big extended scene where basically him and... Uh, Willie like flirt like ridiculously and they're, they're well they go to each other's bedroom and he's also been attacked by an assassin at the same time and it's like yeah it's just like yeah it's kinky it's weird it's funny but yeah really really troubling um yeah I mean worth, still worth a watch but yeah you've got to watch it through the eyes of this guy was was going through something back then <laughs> to, to make something so bizarrely like racist because there's nothing like that in um Spielberg's uh 
catalogue, would you say? Like, I've never got that sense from any of those other films. Not that explicit. Like, I think he really, like, there's a sense that he's, like, relishing it. Like, I think of that dinner scene in Temple of Doom a lot where it's like, oh, they have, like, eyeballs in their food and isn't that, like, creepy and disgusting. But I think a lot of Raiders, the way that it's set in Egypt and the way that it treats kind of, like, the background characters or the first scene... No, wait. Yeah, that is Raiders when they're, like, in the... Amazonian jungle or whatever I don't think it's not racist but it's just not like having a great time with it in the same way whereas Temple of Doom is really like what if this were the whole point and it's like but what if it weren't <laughs> but then the year after this he makes it like the colour purple you know it's like such mm. a strange about turn um, but anyway it's an interesting film I think still technically kind of amazing but yeah bloody hell uh, Anna Hugh, what have you been watching so uh, I <laughs> read Jamie's film column, which, uh, confession, I don't do it every month, but I did do it this month. <laughs> so, <laughs> just like a little plug for the print version of The Skinny. Um, and in it, Jamie was talking about they were doing like an Ennio Morricone sort of retrospective at the film house because there's the documentary. Is the documentary out now? Has it already been out? It's out soon. Yeah, I'm not sure what it's in aid of. Was that a documentary? I wasn't too sure. I just knew they were doing it. Yeah, so there was like a documentary about Ennio Morricone that I saw at Venice, which is like solidly fine. But then I think a lot of places are doing things about his career, which I actually think is more interesting than the documentary. So anyway, I went to see Days of Heaven um, at the film house, which is Terrence Malick, one of the most beautiful films ever made. Um, and yeah, it was just really gorgeous seeing it on a big screen. Richard Gere again very sexy that was nice um there's this incredible scene so like it's famously the film that i think it took them like three years to shoot and it was like meandering and none of them really knew what was happening because he would only shoot in like one or two hours of like golden light at like dusk or dawn which i just think is like baller um and there's this one scene where there's this plague of locusts that like rise up and there's no cgi it's all practical effects and so the way that it happens is they did, like, what was it? I think they said that, like, they dropped loads of, um, like, peanut shells down on the ground. And then he rewound the film so it plays in reverse. And so it looks like they're rising up. But it was actually, like, a, what do you call it? Those planes that, like... Crocodiles. Yeah, yeah, those. I think it was one of those that, like, just loads of peanut shells down. And then you have that, like, with, like, Richard Gere's silhouette. Oh, it's just really fucking good. Um, so, yeah, that was very nice. I don't know if it is still on the big screen near you. But you should also watch it on a small screen because it's just a very, very good film. Good stuff. What have you been watching, Peter? I watched Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Was it for the first time? No, I had seen it years and years and years ago. So Who Framed Roger Rabbit, for anyone who hasn't seen it, the premise of it is that cartoons live in the real world with humans and they all kind of work as actors and stuntmen. And then uh, it's like a murder mystery noir that's also like a family comedy that is also extremely horny and weird and also features some characters getting melted to death. (laughs) It's fantastic. It's so fucking good. (laughs) Uh, Roger Rabbit is a canonical shagger for his ability to... He has... His partner is Jessica Rabbit, who's the most, like, overdrawn cartoon animator's idea of what a woman looks like you've ever seen in your life. Like... Surely no way that you could actually stay upright if your body was, if your, like, proportions were like that. But she's like, oh, I really love this idiot rabbit. And it's like, well, fair play. The guy must just be very, very funny. Uh, Bob Hoskins is the private detective. He hits a weasel in the face with a bar stool. 
Uh, he like just runs around waving a gun around at one point. It's like one of these films where and I think we talked about this a little bit last time when films weren't necessarily like hard coded as being for children or adults. There's some stuff in here for like kind of younger audiences, and then there's also like a kind of film noir nestled inside it as well. It's so good. Yeah, it's on Disney Plus at the moment, so you should check it out if you haven't seen it. Incredibly funny. Just so well done as well. You watch a modern kind of blockbuster and quite often you think the CGI looks like shit, or you find yourself taken out of things and being like, I can see the joins, I can see the strings on these puppets. With this, there's none of that. It's so convincingly done, and everyone's so committed to the bit, kind of like we were saying the other day about the Muppets. Like, Bob Hoskins is fully on board with the idea (laughs) that he is playing opposite a cartoon rabbit. Yeah, just incredible. Incredible filmmaking. It is incredible filmmaking. Apex work. So good. There's this one bit where it's like, isn't it Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse? Like floating. Oh, yeah, the skydiving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they have to, like, um, probably there were like loads of negotiations to get them on screen at the same time, which I really love. Like, they're two actors who can't get along. It's why uh, Donald and Daffy Duck do the kind of dueling pianos thing, because apparently (laughs) to get them to agree to use the rights for each of those characters, they had to, they couldn't show one of them in a negative light. (laughs) Like, um, one of them couldn't be better than the other. Like, when you get, like, yeah, when you get two stars and they have to share a top billing on the poster. <laughs> so silly. It's incredible. It's a very, very odd film, but I would recommend it highly to anyone. If you haven't watched it, stop this podcast now and go and watch Who From Roger Rabbit and then come back and hear us talk about Benediction. That'll be a <laughs> jarring tonal shift for you. Okay, so Benediction is the new film from Terence Davies. It kind of follows the life and times of World War I poet and favourite of every uh, high school English lit student, Siegfried Sassoon, uh, played by Leith's own Jack Loudon when he's a younger man and Peter Capaldi in some scenes where he's an older man. So we kick off with uh, Siegfried Sassoon convalescing in Edinburgh after some time at the front in the First World War. He meets Wilfred Owen, he works on his poetry, and we kind of follow his life and loves through his role in kind of interwar high society circles. Uh, Jamie, what do you reckon to this film? Well, I'm a big uh, Terence Davies fan. Uh, you know, he's made brilliant films for like 30 years, but I still think he's a little bit underappreciated maybe in the UK. And I think part of the reason is like his films are just so lacerating. You know, he's really, he makes downers, you know, and he loves tragedy and he loves these kind of self-lacerating characters. And this is certainly one of those. He seems to go through cycles as well, like in the late 80s and early 90s he was making sort of autobiographical films uh, about his kind of troubled childhood, you know, um, so like in Liverpool, so things, things like Volum Day Closes and Distant Voices Still Lives, and then in the middle of his career he went through this kind of stage of making lit- literary adaptations about women, basically, women who were kind of suffering at the hands of men, so films like The House of Mirth or Deep Blue Sea or Sunset Song. And now he seems to be in this kind of groove of making uh, biography films about tragic literary figures. So he just made one recently about Emily Dickinson, which was really good, called A Quiet Passion. And now he's doing uh, Sassoon, obviously. And yeah, like everybody else, I read Sassoon uh, at school, but I didn't really know anything about him. And he's clearly a great subject because he was like, you know, he's a war hero, a brilliant kind of brave soldier, but he was also kind of hugely critical of what he thought was kind of really jingoistic and unjust war. And then obviously, because of his poetry, it became this kind of famous, you know, part of high society, basically. And like, uh, you, you know, you see him mingling with people like Ivan Novello, and he has these 
you know, it's, it's things we, we don't really know about him. Like, so he, he went off and had these affairs with men who are all kind of horrible. Um, so yeah, it's a kind of eye on the film if you don't really know much about him. I guess like what's interesting about Davies is the way he, he shoots films. He, he, he has a style where he kind of, uh, he would make a, like a lot of his scenes are quite conventional, but then he'll mix in these kind of really poetic tableaus or like sort of poetic sort of um, like dreamy sections. And he does that here um, with Archive. It does like it has, has these amazing sections where we'll cut back, so we don't really see any scenes during the war or in the trenches or anything like that. Because this is, I mean, part of that is probably it's really expensive to do that, and this is quite a low budget film. But it get, gives him the chance to use this amazing archive from World War One, which which he overlays with this amazing poetry read by Jack Loudon, um, either Sassoon or Wilfred Owen or other poets from that time. And yeah, he kind of makes that makes a kind of really dreamy impressionistic film by blending in these kind of quite wry scenes of like 1920 society as well so yeah it's a really interesting film i think he's a yeah if, if you like terence davies i think this will this will kind of grab you really yeah i agree i think this film is astonishing um it's one of my favorites of the year i think um yeah like peter you were saying we've all grown up sort of reading Siegfried Sassoon in a lot of ways. Like if I think about, and I've studied English literature kind of in various institutions, like that makes me sound like I was committed, like <laughs> like schools, universities, like that sort of thing, um, various times. And World War One poetry came up with astonishing regularity, like at least every year. And the way it was taught was so dour and so boring. And you never had this sense of, like who these were as people and what this actually, the stakes of what they were going into and the politics that surrounded like this enormous waste of life. And I think what he does with this film is that he like breathes life into a topic that this country has rendered so stuffy and so boring because of how this country feels about war. Um, so yeah, like you say, that kind of use of archival material, there's like the photos and there's almost like collage thing where sometimes um, the actors will like blend into photos or whatever or there's this one scene um, with like a leaflet that kind of takes over the whole screen almost um, and yeah just a sense of like the past is something that's like lurking and lingering and like haunting you um, which is very unusual I think for this kind of film like you go into it or you even see stills or you see a trailer and you think that it's going to be quite a like gentle period piece or it's going to be very realist but it's actually very strange and prickly and dreamy and I really love that um it's very sad but it is also very funny like it's not I completely agree with you like a lot of his films are downers essentially like the long day closes is so sad um but this one is like so funny <laughs> like these boys so it's kind of about yeah like his life and especially in his like younger years post-war there's a lot of various affairs with um like Ivan Novella's in it and um yeah various kind of boys flit in and out and these boys are so fucking petty <laughs> and so catty with each other and it's just so charming and alive and also sad because you know that as alive as they are in these like contexts of domestic spaces and rooms they can't be beyond that and it's just so well done um Jack Loudon MVP I think for me like genuinely performance of the year so far maybe he has this like astonishingly like clipped way of talking but it's so alive 
and every time I've watched this, I've really felt with his performance, there's a sense of restraint, but it's not that it's a restrained performance. It's that he is playing someone who's very restrained. He's like constantly holding in so much anger. And you see that flitting across his face all the time, this kind of vulnerability and this rage is just so good. It is so good. I feel you should just go see this film. Like it maybe isn't quite what you would expect a biography of a World War One poet to be. And it's just incredible. It's just incredible. What did you think, Peter? I love it. I could just talk about it forever. Um, Jack Loudon is great in it. Um, he's, yeah, like you say, a really kind of measured but in a good way like he does it's very deliberate what he's doing but it still feels quite naturalistic which is nice peter capaldi maybe doesn't quite get to that level he just comes across as very grumpy and his <laughs> accent is like an absolute sight to behold uh i do think that ivan novello is comes across as history's greatest supervillain. <laughs> like you want to talk about a canonical shagger jesus he's but such uh, a dick. <laughs> yeah but yeah i think like the thing of the use of like archive strange tableaus and collage and stuff it gives it a really it reminds me a lot of when you're reading this kind of poetry you have to do a lot of like in your mind's eye stuff and this is kind of how you would it it feels very kind of like dreamlike mind's eye like in the way that it presents what's going on and i also appreciate the fact that they didn't the temptation i feel a lot of time with biopics is to make somebody out to be like the hero of the piece and i think that they did a good job of showing the kind of slightly ambiguous nature of somebody like Siegfried Sassoon, who was at the front and did make a lot of hay out of being at the front, but then like transitioned very clearly, was able to transition very easily into like the high society ranks of being a professional poet. Um, and they do some really good stuff when the kind of action set at the war hospital and Craig Locker of showing the kind of horrible things that his fellow soldiers have been through, but mm. they don't get the payoff of getting to be a successful poet gallivanting about town in the 1920s. Yeah, I think he is so particular as a, and again, that's not something that ever really came across when we were taught it. Definitely the queerness never ever came across, oh, no. ever. And I, it's so integral to who he is as a, which I, yeah, anyway, um, the way that English literature taught, I could do a whole series of podcasts about that. Um, but yeah, like, so the thing with Siegfried Sassoon is that he is almost unique among like that canon of World War I poets and that he survived. Hmm. And we don't really talk about that a lot. Like we're so caught up in them in the processes of war that we don't really think about them as people with this sort of like queer life that extends beyond the war. And I think to have picked someone that both goes beyond that and you're right, like carries on in a way that other soldiers weren't able to do. Um, I just think that's such an interesting direction to have taken because you could have made the whole film about the bits that he is famous for and to have not done that, I think is, yeah, it, it just completely reframes, I think, how we understand people who write about conflict, which I just think is very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely elements that Terence Davies deeply identifies with Sassoon as well, you know, it's like Terence Davies is a gay man but he's always had sort of a troubled relationship with being gay and he said he hates it and it's like it's made his life miserable and I think he, I mean that's what the film's about, like a lot of it, a lot, there's a lot of regret, like um, Sassoon has these fantastic affairs but none of them work out, the men sort of treat him badly, there is one man who might work out but then he decides to get married instead and, and then we see 
uh, Peter Capaldi at the end. And while, while the, the woman he marries is lovely and, and then they have a family, he still sort of bitterly regrets his life. And I, I feel like there's a sense of Terence Davies doing that a little bit. He's, he's kind of maybe wishes he had, you know, he obviously grew up when he did, where he was, there was less opportunities to be like openly gay and yeah, you get the feeling there's a lot of kind of him in this role, yeah, and that really comes through that kind of that kind of sense of regret and that sense of like you know chances not taken. And I guess it ties in a little bit with the multiverse, the idea that your life, uh, you know, your life is a series of choices you make and, and sort of happy accidents. You know, you know, somebody like Wilfred Wilfred Owen could have been the the success. He was also he was arguably more successful. Uh, certainly now he's probably more famous than Sassoon. He could have been the, the toast of uh, literary London, but he, he didn't get the chance. So, like, uh, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's a really kind of bittersweet film, like, uh, you know, like a, like you say, funny, but also, yeah, full of sort of heartbreak and, uh, yeah, emotion. That's this line I think about a lot um, with Tolkien, actually, because I um, studied a lot of Tolkien once upon a time. Um, and there's this line that he wrote in one of his letters where he's like, yeah, by 1918 all but one of my close friends was dead and he was like in the sum and you do just think about yeah that sense of how many people with so much potential did it kill off and how completely incidental was that and then what was the absolute trauma not only of the trenches I think we talk about like yeah that kind of idea of shell shock and PTSD and all of that but what does it mean to have survived that kind of massacre um, and yeah like you're completely right that sense of like regret like trauma and regret that just runs the whole way through it is just so good it's so good the one of the things that's really great about this film is it does have all the things you've just said but it cannot be stressed enough rye english banter like (laughs) yeah (laughs) every so so bitchy like so bitchy it's so good (laughs) so uh benediction is out in the uk in cinemas on the 20th of may i think it's been pushed back a week so it's out a week tomorrow, if you're listening to this, the day it comes out, which you should be, really. But yeah, Benediction, 20th of May. Go and see it. Very good. Lads, I've got some great news. Dr. Stephen Strange is back. Everyone's favourite neurosurgeon turned magician is back. <laughs> and this time, he's teaming up with America Chavez, who's uh, played by Sushi Gomez. She's a teenager who can pass through the various dimensions of the multiverse, which is a thing we shall discuss shortly. Uh, this power makes her a target for Wanda Maximov, aka the Scarlet Witch, who's played by Elizabeth Olsen, who has kind of resolved to hunt her across the world, brackets, S. That's all the information I'm going to give you to start with, because that's basically all I got when this film started. Anaheat, <laughs> what did you think of Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness? Oh my god, this madness! (laughs) You are somehow making it worse. Um, Yeah, I, no, no, uh, no, sorry. I really, truly did not like this film. I think it might be the first Marvel film I have actively disliked. Like, I didn't really, there's a couple of others that I'm just like, oh, whatever, but this I'm like, what are we fucking doing here? So, yeah, it is hard to talk about it in a way because obviously we don't want to, like, spoil it for people. Um, And we were also told very strictly at our screening not to give anything away. Um, What they said was, 
don't give away any cameos, any um, spoilers. And then they said, don't give any way, away any plot or character development. Yeah, which is useful because there was no character development to give away. The so thing that's I like liked worked to, out fine. Yeah, the thing I liked about that as a phrase was it basically meant, please tell people this film is good. Don't yeah. give them any reason why <laughs> it is. This, yeah, okay. So everything that is good about this film is down to Sam Raimi, the director. Everything that is bad, which is most of it, is due to the Marvel machine, essentially. So Sam Raimi does do some very interesting, he brings like a real horror sensibility to it, which is obviously what he is known for. There are some very, very good kind of draws on previous horror. There's a lot of like Evil Dead stuff. Um, There's this one bit that is very, very reminiscent of the girl in the ring, which I think is like really interesting. So visually, that's all very creative and there are parts especially in those kind of action scenes where it feels like it has the most personality and is doing something generically different than the rest of marvel has done that's all fine respectfully what the fuck was that script this is a kind of script where people just say like nonsense like they and it feels like the kind of script which has been completely condensed and edited down in the editing room so lines just feel very out of context you have benedict wong just shouting at people to fortify their minds there's a lot of talk about we need to save america in every universe which like it's a lovely name but like you must know how that sounds like you must know like it just feels bizarre like it it has no flow it has no charm Bendit Cumberbatch, I really, really like. I think he's a very charismatic actor. He is given nothing to do in this beyond a vague sort of regret for a love interest who had five minutes in the original film. So, like, why? Why are we doing this? And the thing that pissed me off the most is the whole wonder situation. So, again, we're not going to get into spoilers or really what happens, but this film has a tendency... And by tendency, I mean the whole fucking plot revolves around it. To use motherhood as a kind of coda for like an understandable psychosis. So even though whatever Wanda's doing, like, yeah, maybe it's evil, maybe it's not. How do we feel about it? You're meant to kind of, it's a shortcut, this kind of obsession she has with motherhood and her children for particular ways that she behaves. And even if you don't agree with it, you're meant to understand that as like a grounding reason that moves the plot along. And I have had enough of this nonsense. It is so stupid. You can talk about motherhood in films in very interesting ways. The Lost Daughter did that. Hustlers did that, I think. Um, Yeah, in really kind of, and in quite similar ways. Like there's a line from Hustlers I think about a lot where they talk about like motherhood being a mental illness, which I just think is a very interesting line of inquiry. But to just have this woman who has completely broken any sort of previous characterization because of this encompassing idea that if you get even the smallest glimpse of motherhood, it will take over your whole life, it will take over your whole personality, you've never known a love like it, it will define, just shut the fuck up. (laughs) It made me so angry. So yeah, I did not like this. I really wanted to, there were glimpses of it that I did really enjoy. I'm not just being like anti-Marvel like I really want to like it but I didn't like it and honestly if you want to watch a Marvel thing this week go and watch Moon Knight because that is like cute and Egyptian and has those of Arab influences and Oscar Isaac and actually makes sense as a plot those are my thoughts God 
Jamie, what did you think? <laughs> oh, I'm in this awful position of almost defending Marvel because I, I really, Jamie, why? I, I had a lot of fun with this film, and well, part of it is like I think Doctor Strange as a superhero, it, like he's he's quite cinematic, you know, like unlike uh, some of the other characters, like you know, Captain America can throw a frisbee, or like <laughs> Hawk, Hawkeye is good at archery, you know, they're not exciting, visually exciting characters, but Doctor Strange, you know, he, he can. Bend time, he can change reality, he can enter different planes of reality, you know, so it's quite interesting on screen. Um, and even the Doctor Co- uh, Strange comics of the 60s, you know, as drawn by Steve Dicko, who was like a bit of a genius, were like really psychedelic, and, and I think they've kind of pulled some of that kind of like cosmic psychedelic artwork into these films, which make them a bit more interesting than your typical Marvel movie. And then added to that, you have Sam Raimi, who I think is a great choice as a filmmaker because. He can film action scenes, you know, like I think one of the big problems with Marvel films is typically they look for talented indie directors who I feel when they're brought in, they just hand over the action scenes to another team because all those action scenes look the same, they're generic, they're muddied, they're shot in these kind of brown, grey kind of areas and like in, in this film the action scenes really popped I think, they're really goofy and inventive. There's a brilliant scene involving fighting with musical notes where Doctor Strange throws around semi-quavers like he's like the ninja stars. You know, it's really cool and like stuff I hadn't seen before. Um, yeah, so like, you know, there's a bit where uh, somebody enters Wanda's brain. I don't want to tell you who because that might spoil something. But yeah, like it looked really cool and it was like, it was like a, it was something I hadn't seen in a Marvel film where they used these superheroes' powers in very cinematic ways, which, which is what these films should do. They should be cinematic and they should stuff to show you things that are, are real. You've got, they've got all this money, they might as well put it on screen and do something interesting with it. And I think they did do it here. Um, and I kind of like Cumberbatch, you know, I don't really love him in other things, but I think he has got a kind of wry, you know, he, he can make a joke by just lifting his eyebrow, you know, he's, he's got a kind of, he's got a sensibility that kind of works as this character, I think. And I, I like Benedict Wong, even though I agree he's he's doing a lot of exposition. I like Rich McAdam. She's acting a lot better than her, than her character deserves, you know, the character's not like, particularly deep um so there's lots of good stuff um but yeah my, my well one of the biggest problems is there's so much exposition like oh, so much like you ha- you know you don't only have to have watched dr strange one you have to have watched all the avenger films you have to have watched spider-man you have to have watched one division a tv series i think you may actually have had to watch this cartoon called what if because there's bits that i just didn't understand and it's never explained in the plot is that there's so much exposition but they never Never enough to like join the dots, um, so it's it's not satisfying as a story. I think it's more satisfying visually. I totally agree. The Wonder stuff is weird and ridiculous. The whole "I'm a monster, not a mother" bit is oh, so offensive hell. <laughs> and such a betrayal to a character who I think is a good character. You know, she's quite interesting. But I think Marvel clearly do have a issue with motherhood because they also are extremely weird with Black Widow. I don't know if you remember. Like her motherhood status, the fact that they went to great lengths to explain that she was like sterilized as part of her training as a spy, just like weird stuff. Like they don't tell you about, you know, I don't know if the Hulk can have babies. Does he shoot blanks? I have no idea. Why? 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 The most radioactive man in the world. I know. No ways he's having. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Why? Why do you know? Why is that? Why? Why? Why are we having to know about that kind of stuff? So I just think they've got a weird sort of attitude towards it. Um, You know, like Thanos killed his daughter. Didn't sort of. Sent him bananas. He's bananas already. But why does it? Why does why does Wonder go off the deep end um, when she loses her kids, who actually are fake kids, who she had for a week? So not even real kids. This is anyway. <laughs> I, uh, I'm sorry, I'm bringing it on your side. Anyway, 
Um, don't want to spoil that. God forbid. <laughs> but, um, and saying all that, though, I I got to say I did enjoy it. I, I had a lot of fun. I laughed a lot. I was surprised by it. I love the Evil Dead stuff. I think if you are a Sam Remy fan and you have grown up watching his stuff, you will love the references to Evil Dead. You know, I could, you know, all the cameos are ridiculous, but the one cameo that is good is Bruce Campbell appearing. And, you know, it's like, oh, that's, uh, you know, it's like giving you a little little hint of uh, all, all of Remy's other films, you know? So, like, yeah, there's, there's lots to hate, but I think there's enough to like here that pushes us towards the better Marvel films for me, personally. The Sam Raimi stuff is the most effective stuff in it. All the kind of borrowed like POV shots from Evil Dead, the endless Dutch angles when people run to doors, the weird obsession with human skin. I think I would agree with you, Jamie, that some of the action is entertaining, but it's quite telling that the best bit in the whole film is basically a kind of glorified tech demo that you would use to sell a fancy TV to somebody. <laughs> like... There's a scene where, and it's been talked about in a lot of reviews, so I don't think it's a spoiler to say, it's basically the same scene from the first Doctor Strange where they fall through many universes in quick succession. And it looks really cool, and you're like, oh, that's a bit of paint, that's the woods, etc., etc. But like, it's not in service of anything. Yeah. It just is there, and it's there to prove that they could do it. The thing that it really reminds me of, weirdly, is that Sony Bravia TV advert where they rolled all the balls down the hill in San Francisco while oh Jose Gonzalez God. played in the background. Yes. It's like, it doesn't actually tell a story. It's just impressive that you could throw that many balls down a hill at once. And that's effectively what this bit of Doctor Strange is. like. It's dead impressive that you could cut that many bits of footage together in a coherent, not even in a coherent, we're just in like a way where they all lined up. So, bravo. Um, the film doesn't really have a middle. Uh, I said this to Anna Heat when we came out of the screening, Elsa, and then she turned to me and said, it doesn't really have a beginning either. <laughs> um, I think that there are fan service cameos in it that didn't work either in service of the story or as fan service because we went to a preview fan screening and no one in the screening cared. We took bets as to how many whoops and cheers there would be, and we all lost because there were none. Yeah, I well, there, there was yeah. like half. We got half a cheer when the projector came back on. <laughs> Um, there were some IMAX issues. We'll not get into it. Maybe we'll save that for a bonus episode of the pod one day. Um, and also, just as the standard MCU problems, like I don't, I haven't watched a lot of the. I'm not going to be like one of these. I don't watch these films. Uh, I just haven't watched a lot of them. Um, but the standard MCU problems are that you're expected to do shitloads of background reading. You're constantly kind of in media res in several different plot lines at once. So you'll turn up and some story will be half done, but also a new story has just begun and then the next story is about to begin in five minutes' time. I just, like, I don't know who these people are. You're you're talking about characters and situations as if they've been in this film already. And that only works if this film is one part of a 42-hour film that I've supposed to watch the whole thing. Yeah. And sorry, I have not. But then Please even, send help. But then even having seen the films doesn't help because, I like... True to Edgefor, his character appears, and I, have I missed something? Was there some sort of major beef that happened? Like, like I, I, I can't remember there being such an antagonism between mm-hmm. him and Doctor Strange, and there's been nothing. As far as I can tell, nothing in between to like sort of fill in that gap. I think they just add stuff for storytelling purposes to make mm-hmm. it sort of more dramatic, and hope that people just vaguely remember that there was some sort of beef there, but they don't, you know, like things like that start to seem missing. There's lots of kind of little holes that don't quite make sense. And I have like seen all of the films, I have seen all of the TV shows, but then what that means is you're watching a film that is half designed for you, 
but like you say, not really properly, but then also kind of designed for people that aren't. So then literally, like you said, 70% of the dialogue is exposition, which is just ridiculous. And I went back, actually, another thing I watched this week um, was I went back and watched Infinity War because I was like, am I just jaded? Like, am I just a bit done? And, like, I don't, I'm not even a big fan of Infinity War and Endgame. Like, they're not my favorites in any way. But I was like, no, this has, like, life to it and it has movement. And this just felt like it got to the end of the film. And it's not even, again, no spoilers. It's not about what the end was, but I just, the end happened. And obviously it's leading to something else. And I was just tired. I was just like, fucking hell, <laughs> I can't be bothered. And yeah, I mean, we'll talk about this more in the whole like multiverse chat, but it's just, it's just too much. Uh, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness is on everywhere. You Truly cannot miss everywhere. it. It was on 130 times a day at the weekend. From like 6 a.m. Yeah. Who is doing that? Like, please write in and explain. <laughs> and, then, and then you get the email saying, we're number one. Can you imagine it? Well, nobody wonder. There's nothing else <laughs> shown. Because you're number one. It's anyway. all, yeah, if you, if you want to see it, you're not going to want for a screening of it in any format you desire. Uh, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness after this brief musical bump we'll be back with another film that is kind of similar but much much better (laughs) okay so the promised better film Uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once the new film by Daniels directorial duo who made Swiss Army Man but more importantly made the Turn Down For What music video Uh, so in this Michelle Yeoh plays Evelyn who is a middle aged Chinese American woman manager of a failing laundrette in a strip mall, kind of drifting through life when she discovers her place at the centre of a multiverse-spanning tug-of-war with her daughter. It's your standard intergenerational, bilingual, sci-fi, martial arts, action, comedy, drama. Anahit, what did you think of this film? Oh my god, this is just so fucking good. It is so good. The hype is real. And so often when you hear, because it's been out in the States for a while now and everyone has been going insane. And so I really thought like, oh, well, maybe you won't feel... No, it is so good. Um, I feel a bit reluctant saying a lot because I had only seen the trailer once, I think. And I think going into this pretty unprepared is the best way in a lot of ways. Um, But just, yeah, in terms of the filmmaking, the scale of imagination and ambition at work here is astonishing. Feels like the kind of filmmaking which is just so entirely uninhibited. It reminded me a little, and I realize this may not be a compliment to some people, um, but it reminded me a little bit about like earlier Edgar Wright. So like um, Scott Pilgrim, just that sense of zaniness almost that is very, very grounded in something and very controlled. Um, You have everything from, yeah, like, kind of insane martial arts choreography, which is amazing, to these very, very surreal worlds that just you have to see for the first time to be believed. There's this amazing, um, oh God, uh, completely blanking on his name, the guy that directed Chunking Express. What is wrong with me? Wong Kar Wai. Thank you. Um, there's this amazing like footage that sort of mimics a lot of like Wong Kar Wai's filmmaking, which is beautiful and is just so heartfelt and it just gets you... And the things that this film says, like we were saying, kind of similar to Benediction in a lot of ways, about life's capacity for regret. And this constant sense of like chasing something else, feeling like you missed out on something else that's possible. And the ways that you can that can bleed into your relationships and particularly between like parents and children when parents reach a certain age. I cried a lot 
like it is so it really gets you um michelle yo is fucking queen oh my god and i saw this like really sweet interview with her on it was like gift on tumblr or something where she like started crying halfway through the interview and was like yeah i just feel like i finally been given a role i think especially within western cinema which like understands what I can do and like really wants me to be able to do it all and I feel I've been waiting a really long time for this and I was just like oh my god <laughs> I love you I would die for you um so she's amazing and then Stephanie Sue who plays her daughter is again a, and she hasn't been in that many films and I hope this is a star making turn for her because she is wonderful this delightfully shifting role yeah, it's a perfect film. Um, it's hard to say much more because, yeah, I do think going into it pretty much as unprepared as possible is good, but it's made with such care. I think both in terms of craft and also care for the characters and care for the people who watch it, who are maybe feeling lost or fractured or at a particular point in their lives. And it just, yeah, it just has so much love for that while being absolutely fucking insane. And I love that. It's so good. <laughs> Yeah, I missed the Daniels Voss film, uh, Swiss Army Man, and I feel like an idiot because this is so inventive. Like, it's so, it's a riot. It's like so, so well executed, frenetic. It's also very touching. I would say I don't think it's perfect, though. I, like, I, you know, for me, it kind of, uh, this is, a, you know, I, it does remind me of a bit like something like Rick and Morty, where it's just your, an absolute overload of ideas and gags. And I kind of, it's, you know, almost like a lot of really smart, funny guys being really smart and funny relentlessly. Um, and I found watching it kind of exhausting, actually. I came out of the film absolutely dazed. Uh, <laughs> and it's funny because I think, the, like, one of my favourite scenes actually in the film is the quietest scene. It's like with, uh, can I say this? I won't spoil it. There's a scene with two rocks, basically. Mm. And you've had the, all this frenetic energy for an hour and then two rocks appear and it's silent. And I was like, I was like, could relax for a second. And it's a, it's a very funny scene, very sweet scene, very tender. And I feel, I wish the film maybe had more of that modulation. It's sort of, it's just so frenetic. There's no kind of like, yeah, it's, it's just all one note, I think, apart from a few moments. But in saying that, those action scenes are so brilliantly staged. Um, there's a stunning one early on with uh, uh, Ken Hoi Kwan, who switches from this super sweet, kind of dorky dad with a, you know, he wears a bum bag and he's really, you know, he's really uncool. And then he becomes this kind of cyber agent uh, instantly. He just switches on a dime and he uses his bum bag as a kind of like <laughs> weapon. And it's like amazing. It's like, it's kind of proper old school Hong Kong style action, you know, like, like amazing. And of course, uh, you know, Michelle Yeon, she's like a veteran of that cinema. Um, and it was brilliant to see her kind of pulling uh, off all her kind of kung fu tricks uh, from back in the day. And it, but it's also great to see her be funny as well. Like I think when when you see her in movies, she's usually playing these kind of really amazingly put together women who are kind of so cool. You know, she's like badass spies and like James Bond, or she's like an amazing martial artist and you know crouching tiger. But here she was just playing like a normal middle aged woman who was like run ragged and like but also hilarious and uh yeah it was it was fun fun to see her play a bit of a mess um and, and show that she had this range to be that she can be this kind of frazzled woman who runs a laundrette but also can be a super cool spy kung fu assassin um but yeah and, and i agree the film sort of did proper properly move me like unlike uh, doctor strange was just pure spectacle like i did enjoy the, the, the special effects and stuff and that as well 
it kind of served a purpose here. You know, it built to a crescendo and like I really cared about these characters and what they were going through. You know, and it really dives into really prickly emotions, you know, like regret, like disappointment, um, that you just would never see in a Marvel film, you know. So, yeah, it's a really moving, funny, hilarious film, deeply inventive. But, yeah, it was just a bit too much for me sometimes. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's just... It just it's got a really good balance of absurdity and things being very heartfelt and sincere. It's kind of not afraid to get kind of philosophical about what this all means and what it means to have all these kind of branching decisions in your life, but it's also like not afraid to do some really, really stupid shit. Um, it reminded me a lot, and I kind of got this when the fighting started and it sort of stuck with me, it reminded me a lot of Kung Fu Hustle. Real everybody is committed to every part of the film. So the comedy is great. The action is great. The dramatic scenes are done properly. Nothing's kind of half-assed and nothing is done. If something's done as a joke, it's done as a joke. If something is done sincerely, it's done sincerely. Um, and it also reminded me a lot of um, Michelle Gondry and Spike Jones's music videos for people like the Beastie Boys and... York and people like that in the 1990s kind of early 2000s like if you love people dressing up and you love like silly practical effects and you love kind of like weird sort of homespun looking costuming and stuff it's got a really good again it's got a really good mix of like super high-end VFX work that is like crystal like sharp switches between scenes some like absolutely unbelievably complex like montages in kind of like multiverse fashion, but also some just like really interesting, kind of stupid looking, but incredibly committed like costumes for transporting yourself around that are just made of like LED, like um, RGB lights and like a pair of sunglasses. So yeah, it's got, the, it balances all that kind of like absurdity and sincerity really, really well. Um, everyone's incredibly committed to it. Um, the action is really well choreographed. The script is actually funny. Surely that's cheating. You have to be, you can only do one. <laughs> I was always told you can only do one. Um, but yeah, it's it's really good. I think Jamie's point is a good one. That like, particularly in the last kind of 45 minutes, it does clip along at a constant, like, high pitch. Um, and it's not the shortest film in the world. It's about two hours 15. And it can get a bit like, you'll be edge of your seat for a considerable period of time. But it's really worth it. It's so good. It's so, so good. And, like, it's really not afraid to talk about, as we're going to talk about in a second, the kind of, like, f the philosophical ideas around what the point of telling this kind of story is in a way that Doctor Strange is not interested in doing. I yeah. also, also love what you're saying about the gags uh, aren't just throwaway, you know? Like, and, and Doctor Strange, they'll have, like, lots of jokes, but they just, they mean nothing. But here you have, like, a joke, for example, where uh, one of the worlds that they go to, people have uh, hot dogs for hands, right? And you're like, okay, that's just a gag. That's not that's not going to come back, but it comes back and it becomes a moving love story. It ties into the plot. It explains, uh, you know, it just says a lot about life. And it's like I love how they can just take something so silly and so goofy, but actually spread it out and sort of say, actually, you know, if you live in a world with hands, you would get by. It's like it's it's like <laughs> I love I love all that. Like uh, yeah, so like I love how the commitment to the gags. So everything everywhere all at once is out this Friday, I believe, thirteenth of May. Uh, at cinemas across the UK, you must see it. That's an order. I think is it going to get any more IMAX screens? Do we know? Because I think that did you two both go and see it at yeah, the IMAX? Yeah, which is very yeah good. 
because it is such a visual film. I think it will probably. I would imagine so. Yeah. yeah. If it can boot Doctor Strange out of the way for a couple of showings, <laughs> then it'll be on. Try and catch it in the IMAX if you can. But the really interesting thing, actually, is that all three of us went to see it at kind of like advanced showings, stowed out each one of them, mm. sold out, couldn't get in if you wanted to. I went last night, so on Monday night, cameo, main screen, 200 and odd seats, sold out, real buzz, everyone excited, great film, very good, sentence fragments all over the shop. <laughs> People applauded at the end of my screening, like yeah. at the end of the credits, which I haven't ever seen like outside of a press screening for something. Like it was so nice. It was so nice. Go and see it. Everything, everywhere, all at once, go and see it. To follow on from those two, we thought we'd have a bit of a discussion about multiverses in general and i suppose the key thing is like what is the actual point of a multiverse because there isn't a whole lot of agreement about what constitutes a multiverse versus like a parallel universe or just a kind of branching narrative but it seems to me that surely the point of doing something like a multiverse is to you know show what could have happened or what might have happened to your characters or to give your audience a glimpse at something that is a bit like unexpected or to do a kind of segue off into something that is taking something that your audience knows and then giving them a bit of a new look at it. But that seems to me like it only works if there's some emotional hook or reason to care. And it seems like everything everywhere all at once, Jamie, actually manages to do that. Yeah, I mean, well, for me, the multiverse is a really great metaphor for life. Because as you get older, you start to think of all the things that you could have done differently. Um, you know, all the choices in your life that could have been different and, and, and how that could have changed you as a person. And if there is a multiverse out there, maybe there is a version of yourself that made better choices or made smarter decisions and turned out much better than you. And that's obviously what's getting explored in everything everywhere. You know, it's tapping into that idea. So Michelle Yeoh's character is someone who's kind of failing at being a wife. You know, her, her marriage is breaking down. She's failing at being a mom because she's sort of drifting away from her daughter. Um, she's failing at being a business person because the IRS are chasing her down. <laughs> but uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, who we didn't even mention uh, earlier, is hilarious, is chasing her down. So, so yeah, life is not working out for this woman. But uh, she has glimpses of all these other lives where things are much more stable and much more exciting and, you know, and that's a kind of really potent, exciting idea. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I don't want to spoil the film, but, like, ultimately, also, also the idea is if all these worlds exist, it's almost the kind of greener on the other side sort of idea. You know, grass is always green on the other side, but sometimes you have to just say, okay, I'm on this grass. Maybe it's a bit shit. <laughs> it's a bit sun damaged, <laughs> but you know, gonna make the best of it. So, like, yeah, like, 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 what, what's obvious is Marvel is not at all interested in any of those kind of existential ideas that the multiverse throws up. You know, what, what they want to do is like, they, they want to say, wouldn't it be cool if Iron Man came back as Tom Cruise in another universe? You know, because we can make another billion dollars off of that. Or wouldn't it be cool if all these characters who don't uh, currently hang out together because of. Uh, like commercial reasons could hang out in another universe. That's what they're interested in, really. They're interested in the kind of the potential, the the, the monetization of the, the uh, multiverse. But I love how like the Daniels, you know, really dig into the kind of existential question of like what would life be like if there was other views out there. Um, so yeah, it's it's, it's kind of really kind of rich, rich kind of idea, I think. 
Yeah, I completely agree with both of you. I think it is like what is leading the story. Like a multiverse is a narrative tool. So what narrative are you trying to tell? And I think what everything everywhere all at once does is so special because the multiverse is a vehicle for exploring, yeah, these kind of existential ideas of like regret and longing and that kind of medium and message line up perfectly. Like you couldn't tell that story without the multiverse because you need this sense of, yeah, alternative histories and alternative lives and that's what it provides. But with Marvel, the multiverse itself is the point because it can, in theory, provide not like alternative stories or alternative lives, but like alternative films. And there is just something that is ironically so cheap about that. <laughs> like it just makes cinema feel cheap. Um, and we're thinking about this a lot. And I think for me, what they are doing at the moment feels a lot like, I mean, it is, but like also just as a kind of structure, it feels like capitalism, like with this kind of emphasis on constant expansion and constant growth and production for the sake of production, which is like how obviously capitalism defines itself. And much like capitalism, it will eventually collapse because you can't actually have infinite growth. Like that isn't a possible thing economically or narratively, like it just doesn't work. Um, and I think for me, the cameos, which we won't spoil, um, but the use of cameos in Doctor Strange specifically really summed it up because you have, of course, what cameos are, like people from other films, other people playing different characters than, or a character being played by someone, like, you know, all of this kind of sense of something alternative. But it's so brief and it's so put in there for shock value and it doesn't actually do anything. Um, and the thing is, if you keep putting your characters in momentary different iterations, it renders everything inherently meaningless because you have no sense of who that character is, how they link with that particular performance that's being done, that particular history of performances if you're making something that has sequels. And it just becomes like a kind of signifier that you can attach any sign, like, you know, like it just doesn't make sense. Um, and I really felt it with this one. And when I think back to how like cameos used to function early Marvel, it was that um, like Mark Ruffalo would be at the end of Iron Man 3 and it was just like kind of cute and sweet and like, you know, it added something about their relationship, but that was it. Or like Loki would turn into Captain America and it was like just funny, it was a joke. But it wasn't, yeah, this sense of constantly feeling like everything that you have attached to these characters is wrong. And I think what Marvel are doing, which is their big mistake, is they these are films that should be built on characters like whether you find those characters interesting or not whether you find like the constant like banter and quips like maybe that's not your kind of cinema but that is actually what makes it work it's why robert downey jr did manage to carry the franchise for so long and if you undermine that for just we need to make a film that has some sort of combinational permutation eventually no one will care and also get from the old stakes because yeah. Any character can die, mm -hmm. and it's okay because there's a billion other of them out there. You can just pull them in from another universe. It's like it kind of renders any death on screen mm -hmm. like completely n null and void because like it doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's similar to like what always frustrated me about the um, end of Infinity War, which is like really shocking. It's like all these characters die, but you know, of course, we know they're all going to come back. It's like it, it 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 renders that any tragedy or any sort of shock you might have felt at the end of that film 
pointless. And any any shot we're going to feel in any Marvel film going forward is going to be pointless because we know that MD can be pulled from any other universe, probably replaced by an actor because you know uh, the other actor doesn't want to play them anymore. So yeah, it's kind of just it's it's a device to make Marvel more money. Really, it's not a storytelling device. Really, I don't think they could care less about the multiverse. And one thing that's really important to note about the kind of way the ways that these two different films deal with the multiverse is that everything everywhere it's all very clearly there's a very clear central point around which everything is operating which is michelle yo's character and the family that she's in i don't know maybe i'm just a marvel luddite whatever the equivalent of that is um but i don't know what the central point like who is the central figure in the Doctor Strange film because I don't even think it's really him because there seems to be so much other stuff going on that it's almost like you can use the narrative device of there being different uh, versions of this same story going on and you can hop in and out of them but it's like we've started off in one of the crappy alternative ones and we never get anywhere near the main one we're just kind of like circling around the houses it also just betrays a real lack of ambition. In Doctor Strange, they go to, honestly, a handful of other places. They go to, like, five or six other places. And a couple of them are just New York with, like, the like DLC palette-swapped New York. As Jamie said, imagine a, imagine a New York where the red light means go and the green light <laughs> means stop. This is a multiverse of madness. <laughs> like, it's ridiculous. And, like, everything everywhere looks at the kind of philosophical... Imp- you. The multiverse has, like, real implications for your kind of psychology and, like, philosophical way of looking at things. You know, it, everything everywhere deals a lot with things like kind of nihilism and depression, but also, like, the power of hope in that kind of situation. And Doctor Strange says that Thor can be friends with the Hulk if you want. That's basically what it is. Like, I was thinking about this before we came through to the room that we're recording in. Um, before we passed through universes into the podcast zone. Um, and I was thinking about, like, actually, the multiverse in an, an MCU sense, and in a lot of, like, bad sci-fi sense, it's like a cupboard on stage in a play that someone can hide in and then jump out in the middle of the show and surprise everyone. But the cupboard door is labelled surprise door do not open until second act so if everyone knows it's there it's not a surprise yeah it's just it's just a cynical way of like it's either a cynical way of just adding in more people more interesting people to get people to come and see your not particularly interesting film you know if you're making a marvel film with some third-rate marvel character but you're like don't worry hulk will be in it for two minutes people will come and see it but it's also just like bad writing to it's then to then writing. just say like oh but this guy turns up it's like the f- you shouldn't be watching a film that cost 150 million dollars to make and visibly be able to see someone padding for time that to me is unacceptable and that's me saying that <laughs> well there's a there is a way to do this because we've all you know i'm sure we've all seen the best multiverse film which is clearly spider-man into the multiverse which is which is all the invention and creativity you could want, but I, I think part of, part of the reason that film works is because it's animation, and animation gives you the ability to make each character distinct and have their own style. So you have all these characters from different universes, but they're all so different, you know. And, and the idea of that 
the universe can be collapsing can be visualized the way it can't be in like that's one thing Doctor Strange didn't really get across is how to visualize the collapse of the universe and obviously uh, Spider-Man into the multiverse does that brilliantly through the visuals so yeah you know um, yeah that film manages to, to, to do everything Marvel wants to do it gives you action it gives you all the kind of serotonin hits of seeing characters from other universes but it does it in a way that's it's emotional and sort of and says something about the characters and there is real stakes for those characters you know you feel peril for them even though they're just like cartoons so yeah there is a way to uh, to do it and, and clearly the way Marvel do it is not working but the, and then that film also even though it is a superhero film though has like a real politics and sort of yeah. philosophy to it right which is why it works like you have again this sense of uh, Jake Johnson's Spider-Man feeling like he's aging and then you have like Miles Morales like this idea of like a young black Spider-Man that we haven't seen before and how that kind of fit and so it's doing something and I think also even though we have had Spider-Men, Spider-Mans, Spider-People before like in the history, God bless, of cinema, we haven't had these particular ones and so it is again doing something very different than what um, which one is it? No Way Home did, right? In that that was bringing in old spider people that we had seen before, whereas this was like Nick Cage playing with, like that's not actually a thing that we have seen or like Spider-Pig or like any of that kind of stuff. Like that's just a bit, and obviously it's in the comics, but it's not playing on audience expectations of a history of cinema. It's playing on, can you reimagine something in that moment? And that feels more interesting. It feels more challenging to you as a viewer. And he even has the same plot point. Like if you remember, multiverse is about Kingpin. He's creating this multiverse because he has lost his family mm. because of you know because of his own his own sort of uh, villain, villainy. But it's like his, 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 that's a tragic thing as well. It's a similar idea of a parent trying to get their family back together, but it's not in a crass way. There's, you know, he doesn't say I'm a father, not a monster. He doesn't. Yeah. It, you know, there's no no crash writing. It's a really tragic story that you know you know makes you sympathise a little bit for Kingpin, but it's 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 so well written, so much more. The characters so much more nuanced than than how it's uh, applied in Doctor Strange. And obviously, there is going to be a second one of that, um, which I think has now been pushed till next year, which is sad. And I'm very interested and excited to see what that will be like. But the thing as well that I think really differentiates the Marvel one from the Everything Everywhere one is that that is a multiverse that is contained within a single film. And so even though it has this sense of like unlimited possibility, it is actually very delineated and they have like big control. Whereas, yeah, I mean, kind of what you were saying in your review, Peter, that like if you haven't seen all of these films, it becomes a bit meaningless. This fact that the multiverse has carried over multiple films, that there have actually also been now three Marvel multiverses, none of which connect with each other. There was like the one at the end of Loki that no one has ever referenced ever again. There was the one in Far From Home, which is apparently different, not Far From Home, No Way Home, which is apparently different than the one in, like how many multiverses do you need? (laughs) Like you've introduced this concept so many times. And it's just, yeah, it is really exhausting. And I think it was why, like, yeah, it's been like Marvel that's come out recently, like the Moon Knight TV series felt again like a breath of fresh air because it had nothing to do with anyone else. It was just Oscar Isaac for six episodes. And that was it. You just have to think beyond that. And actually, I miss that kind of storytelling in Marvel so much. I hate this kind of fragmented, this is a chapter and that sense of it being a chapter is what creates the multiverse. No, the multiverse is a narrative tool. You have to do more than just be like, there'll be a sequel. 
Seems fair. I think Got so. <laughs> Boom. Save this. Send to Kevin Feig. <laughs> dot dot wav sorted. <laughs> okay, so the final thing for today that we want to talk about is James Price, the fantastic Glasgow filmmaker. Uh, whose work we are doing a retrospective of at Summer Hall in Edinburgh on Wednesday the 18th of May. We're going to show some of his short films and do a Q&A with James as well. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit now about some of his films, if you're not familiar with his work, and about one in particular which kind of fits in the same kind of like multiverse branching narrative kind of setup. But Jamie, do you want to go first and talk a bit about James's work in general? Yeah, well, James... I guess on the surface, his films seem to be working along the same lines as many kind of Scottish and British filmmakers, you know, namely their kind of social realist films. Um, But the thing with James is he injects like so much kind of style and uh, humour into that kind of gritty realism that that kind of makes his films kind of stand apart, I think, from kind of young filmmakers who are also trying to work in that milieu. Um, I think his best film so far is Boys' Night, which is a kind of great kind of nocturnal movie set in Glasgow about a kind of young lad walking his drunk father home. Uh, and what's you know, what's great about it is it's really funny and touching, as well as being sort of sad and sort of depicts a kind of pretty troubled childhood. Um, but the dad is not a villain, you know. It's really humanistic, and yeah, he's got he's got a way of telling sort of very honest stories about Glasgow in a way that's kind of very touching and sort of full of style. And full of humour. And I think he's also a very flexible director because I think one of the films we want to talk about is Spiral, which is him making his own Groundhog Day style movie, which which, you don't, which again, he made it over t- uh, 40 hours and yeah, he showed his, his very versatile. I think you guys have watched it. Yeah, I mean, the thing about Spiral is it's got a really tight time loop and it basically speedruns quite a similar emotional arc to everything, everywhere, all at once. And it's like confusion, pondering, anger, nihilism, uh, uh, like resolve bashes through stuff in like seven or eight minutes it's really excellent pacing it really flies by one of the most interesting things about it and something that he does in a lot of his films real texture to the characters even if someone only has like four or five lines you get a real sense of them as an actual person there's one character in spiral who basically has the same line four times in a row but because of his delivery and his like consistency but like specificity of delivery you know who that person is straight away even if he literally says about nine words so like i think that's one of the things that and like you get a lot of that in uh, boys night and what is the concrete and flowers is that the one so we ran a short film screening a couple of years ago and we played one of james's at, uh, at that concrete and flowers which again is set in kind of working class glasgow and he does a lot of work with like kind of traveling between spaces in the city and kind of people going on like literal and kind of emotional journeys and yeah he, he has a real knack of like pulling out like feature style like texture in characters and in situations in like really short timescales he's a really great filmmaker and as i said last time the guy's dress sense is impeccable <laughs> 10 out of 10 um yeah i've only seen spiral um and i won't be there next week because she's very sad um but it was very funny, I thought, like a really anarchic sense of humor. Um, it reminded me, there's this line in, um, what is it called, Palm Springs, which is like the other kind of Groundhog Day time loop film of 
recent times, which is so fucking good. And there's this bit in it where Andy Samberg is like, no, like what we do in here matters, like how we treat people matters. Um, and the way that this guy is like cycling through out of frustration, how he's treating other people and what the stakes of that are and what the meaning of that is. I just thought it was like very interesting and very well done for like, what is it, nine minutes, seven minutes? It was so short. Um, so yeah, very, very good. I really enjoyed it. I will try and go watch this old stuff maybe after this because it was very good. Yeah, and what I like is, you know, it imagines a young guy on a council estate stuck in this loop and he, he does, he takes advantage of that in all sorts of ways by you know, committing robberies and he shags the postman and he does all these kind of things <laughs> he would never do in real life. But what, I mean, what I guess he's saying is actually this is a bit what it's like to be young and poor and sort of living in a, in a council estate. Every day is kind of the same. You're eating the same meals. You're, you're not got much money. Like you're seeing the same people. And it's kind of saying something. It's not just a, it's not just a sci-fi conceit. It's actually saying this is what it's kind of like to be poor and working class and your days look kind of the same. And that's why maybe you act out in certain ways because you're driven to it. So it's it's, it's really smart film. Yeah, For- that sense of monotony is just so kind of latent throughout, and that sense of not having consequences, and then at that like realizing that actually maybe there are, and yeah, how that kind of fits in with the class narrative is really clever. Really talented. He's great. Impeccable dress sense. <laughs> so, if you want to see these great films and probably some excellent threads, uh, we're doing it's a double bill that we're doing at Summer Hall on Wednesday, the 18th of May, half past six. We've got a James Price retrospective with QA. Uh, Jamie's going to be talking to James about the films and about his career. And then after that, we're showing Good Time, the Safdie Brothers film with Robert Pattinson, which James has talked about being like a big influence on his work. Um, Really terrifying, anxiety-inducing score by One of Tricks Point Never. Lots of running, lots of... I mean, it's a Safdie Brothers film. (laughs) If you weren't anxious before, you will be now. So that's at 8.45... Um, you can get tickets for both of those at summerhall.co.uk. Um, if you go on there on the What's On bit, you'll find it. And also, there's like a double bill ticket if you want to come to both of them. Uh, me and Jamie will be there. Come and say hi. You'll be able to find Jamie easy enough. He'll be the one with the microphone talking to the filmmaker. I'll be the one lurking in the back trying to avoid eye contact with everyone. Anna Heat will be, I believe, on a plane to New York. Yes, indeed. Party, party, party. <laughs> um, I think that's everything for today. Um, thanks very much for listening if you've enjoyed this then please tell your pals share on social media and give us a good review wherever you get your podcasts and on whatever scale your podcast app allows you to leave a good review leave us the most good one that they let you do um thank you to jamie just pr thank you anna heat thank you peter we will be back in two weeks time with more chat about films (laughs) goodbye (laughs) (laughs) Bye. <laughs> <laughs>